0: Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or ROE, is a community of wellbeing managers from organisations around the globe. At ROE, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, Professional development is key. These discussions on workplace well-being are designed to inspire, share ideas and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this interview, we take a deep dive into the science of behaviour change. Feel-good messaging won't motivate all employees to make healthy choices, so what will? To explore the topic, we're joined by behaviour change expert, Dr. Mark Wallace-Bell. We discussed motivation and commitment and what organisations can do to support employees to make sustainable, healthy behaviour changes. We also discussed barriers to change and simple tips for inspiring employees to try something new. Dr. Mark Wallace-Bell is an internationally recognised health behaviour change specialist. When he's not here with us at Roe, Mark is at the University of Canterbury where he teaches postgraduate papers on health behaviour change
1: think of motivation at a, as a biological level, as a sort of drive, an inner drive. And there are some basic motivations, aren't there? Motivations to eat and drink, to, to nourish the body, and, and motivations to move away from pain, things that give us pain or displeasure, move towards things, give us pleasure and purity. So in some ways, as a biological entity, motivation's at the core of our of our survival. You know, we, we need to do certain things to survive, and those things motivate us to in terms of our behavior, to eat and drink, to uh, procreate, to to find safety and security and shelter and so on. So that very basic level motivation, you could think of it in that way. But then I suppose more psychologically, you could think of it as an inner drive, a sense or feeling or an experience um, that sort of drives you towards certain goals or objectives that you might have for you personally. So I think there's a number of levels, way, ways which you can think about motivation. But then I suppose, yeah.
0: No, continue. What, what did you that, have a, another kind of definition that rings true?
1: Well, uh, so from the world in the world of psychology, we kind of wrestle with this idea of motivated or unmotivated people. And is there such a thing as a sort of binary position on that? And, and I think you hinted at it early on when, you know, it, it's – elusive thing it's it's sometimes there it's sometimes not but i don't think we should think of it like in that way i think it's not binary it's not either you have it or you don't it's just in different strengths or um different states so that it's a more transient changeable phenomena from time to time we want to be motivated towards different things in our daily activities so it's a state of being that's that's um, always in shifting, always moving, always changing. Influenced by different factors, both internal and external. Our environment, people we're with, a whole range of factors influence it from moment to moment. So it's not like it's never there; it's always there. But it's you—it's driving different aspects of our behaviour and our thinking and our, and our and our psychology at different times in different ways.
0: Mm-hmm. So really, quite
1: a complex thing, really, if you think about it.
0: And is it because of that complexity that that's what makes motivation so hard? I mean, you know, when we kind of feel like we feel motivated and then it drops off. and And Then it wanes away. Why? Why does that happen?
1: Why do we not follow resolutions, you know, for, for, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions? I didn't make any this year. I don't think I've ever made a New Year's resolution because I know that I'm probably either on day one of day after kind of failed miserably and it makes me feel bad. So I don't tend to do that because I think it doesn't work for me. It might work for other people. So yeah, I I think from from a therapist sort of psychology kind of perspective, we really like motivated clients, you know, motivated to do the things we'd like them to do to help themselves and improve their well-being or their mental health but that isn't always possible and again you know just like everybody else clients who come to therapy initially are motivated to to try and help themselves feel better or to deal with a problem but at times their motivation does does wane and and we need to revisit that and motivate them again to look at you know what drove them to that initial desire or need to, to solve a problem and what's happened that's now meant that their motivation is waned, And sometimes it's because change is difficult, I think. And that's why people's motivation perhaps fades because when they're, when they're looking at and something they need to change, either in terms of how they're thinking or, or they're behaving, we find that it's actually quite hard to do that and be consistent and follow through. And to achieve the goal that we want is often challenge and I think sometimes that's what knocks people back The motivation starts to fade they become disheartened dispirited feel like it's too hard and then revert back to where they were so I think that's often the challenge of motivation it's not you have it and then it 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 is challenged and that intrinsic drive kind of fades and uh, we need to rekindle that sometimes and that's that's again just like this waxing and waning kind of River that moves around in different ways and it's it's and that that's the challenge I think at the heart of a lot of psychology is to try how do we influence that and how do we maintain it and I think we make a lot of efforts um, as psychologists or in well-being to motivate people as if motivation is something you fill people up with yeah you're not motivated. I need to give you motivation or fill you up with it, or there's a deficit, you know, so I need to fill that deficit with some motivation that comes from me. So that's an extrinsic sort of drive. And I think that can tire you out because if you're always trying to fill people up with something, yeah, it's coming from you. And I think the most powerful uh, motivational force, if you like, is intrinsic. And so it's trying to find What's intrinsic to you? What's value-driven from you in terms of what you want and your goals? And that that type of internal, intrinsic motivation is probably longer-lasting and more powerful. Yeah. So I think for me, I try to try to focus on what's intrinsically motivating for this person. What's going to drive them forward? That's going to maintain motivation for them in the long run, in the long term. When challenges come and things Get difficult. Do they? Where is that source of intrinsic drive that they can tap into and try and re, rekindle? Or
0: and in your experience, what are some of those intrinsic drivers for people? Is it what? Well, what are some of the things that you hear?
1: Well, it varies so much because everybody's so different in terms of what their values are. Um, this collection of people here on Zoom will have so many different things that they would say would motivate them that motivate them to do their job, that motivate them in terms of their family connections and in terms of their uh, leisure p- pursuits and so on. So there's so many different things that motivate us. And with clients, it's the same. So often, you know, the question is, what does constitute your values? You know, what things are important to you? And then drawing that kind of, looking at how some of the things they're doing not delivering those values or goals or manifesting them in their life and what things are. So they spend a bit of time thinking about what are some of the things that are important to me? And is this thing I'm doing helping them in that, me achieving those things now or in the future? So things like whānau, family, friendships, people value, people value connection, people value being self-worth, people value being valued, if you like having a purpose, those sort of things. And sometimes people have lost those things and getting back in touch with those things can help you, you know, motivate you towards your goals. And it's about change, isn't it? So it's about, often in therapy, it's about changing. So people don't want to feel certain things, don't um, want to um, move away from things that make them feel unpleasant or make them feel bad and move towards things that make them feel more positive positive, um, healthier and, and more connected and so on. So trying to find some exploration of what the value is for the person what the goal is that they want and then hopefully helping them to make some changes to get towards that
0: mm. and how often i know from some Developing of the that
1: intrinsic motivation yeah. sorry go on. Mm,
0: no, no no i was gonna say and how often you know is loss a motivator compared to gain you know it, it, people do things because they don't want to lose out on like something compared
1: to doing rewards something. or punishments you're thinking kind of yeah like yeah, yeah very much so yeah well, it's interesting because you've done some research and, and, and actually what motivates some people it, it, rather than gains is losing something. So for example, if you, um, you've done this in some studies where you give people a re- not like a reward, but you give people an incentive up front and you say, well, you can keep that, that token, that voucher or whatever. But if you end up smoking towards the end of the study, we'll take it back yeah we'll ask for it back so you're having to give up something you've already got which is a loss and that sometimes could be more motivating than saying if you manage to stop smoking after six weeks we'll give you a reward
0: connecting to to values and how important that is and actually she had a question you know do you know of good toolkits around helping people to connect to their values and to work out what they are
1: yeah, it's a great resource in MI, and it's freely available. You can download it off the internet, and I'll send a link to you, Sarah, for people to use it. And it's called the Values Card Sort. I don't know if you've ever done that with me, Sarah. I think you may have done it. Some-
0: yeah, we. Well, early on we did, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and basically it's a whole, whole number of 52 cards, which sounds like a lot. There's a lot of values in there, more than you might think. Each one's a statement, and then perhaps a little description underneath. And the idea is you sort through these. Into sort of, and eventually you end up with top 10. And then from your top 10, you end up with top three. So, three top values or really fundamental values that kind of drive your, your, your way of living, your, your interactions with people that sort of set, if you like, you know, who you are a little bit, things that you hold on to that are really important to you. And then those three values then become a focus for discussion with the client around or, you know, for yourself. When you might look at what you are in your life, how you are, your job, your relationships, things you do, and do they sit well with those values or not? And and some of them might not. You might not be living that value. Like you might value um, community or you might value family or you might value purpose or, or feeling like you're making a contribution. And then you look at your life and your work and you think, is that happening to me? Is that true? Is that real? And often that dissonance or cognitive dissonance that comes from knowing or realizing that I have a value over here, with a behavior over here that doesn't sit well with it, that might be motivating for some people to change that behavior. Unfortunately, the other option is to change the value. Well, I I don't think the value is that important. Because I really want to hold on to this behaviour over here, which might be something like alcohol, drink, you know, drinking a lot, spending a lot of time with your mates, uh, drinking, and, and not spending time with family, which is a thing you value. And those two things may not be able to sit together. So, what do you do about that? Do you change the value, or do you change the behaviour? We hope that people will change the, be- the behaviour.
0: And I can see, I can see that would be a real, a real challenge if there are particular things that people want to change. But the change seems really hard. I mean, how, how do you
1: True.
0: you know how do you take people on that journey if the change is a really big one?
1: So change changes are big, and things like not drinking as much or even not drinking at all is a big change to happen. So it happens over time. It takes time to get to that position. It Doesn't happen overnight. It's it's although sometimes it's really curious how sometimes people just say i've done that i decided to do it and i've done it and i've just stopped doing that i don't know if you ever heard maybe friends or relatives or hear stories of people just overnight make these huge transformations in their life and just decide i've had enough i'm going to do this and i've decided you know they left their job or they decided to go back to university just almost on a whim it seems like but maybe they've done a wee bit of planning in their head before it's happened but then they've just made that decision to do it and there's something in that process that's quite interesting but most of the time, people take a wee bit of time to get to the position they want to be in and it takes a bit of effort it takes a bit of planning sometimes it takes a bit of goal setting it maybe take a bit of chunking up the process a little bit putting it into smaller bites so that you You have movement forward and sometimes movement backwards, but it doesn't feel like I have to make this big reach to this huge goal that's way over there in one big leap, which is probably not advisable for most people, because you might well not reach far enough, and that's quite self-defeating and feels like it's you know unmotivating. So, yeah, often goal setting, moving slowly towards it, having a plan. Everybody's so different. Some people. might appreciate a plan, a goal setting exercise, and others. Kind of um, maybe you want to make it up as they go along, and, and there's no real kind of formula for that. I don't think. Mm.
0: And it sounds like then it's quite important to acknowledge that change is not linear. And I know up something you and I have talked about. Right. Change is not linear. There are times when when we're going to go backwards. So people talk about you know falling off the bandwagon or you know kind of getting yeah. off track. How, getting back on track you does that need to be part of the plan yeah I
1: don't like to think of it like on and off or on the wagon or off the wagon that's again that sort of binary thing isn't it you know like oh it's all over I failed I better go back I can't do this um, no point in carrying on I, I think we need to think of change like you say not as a linear thing but as, as a dynamic thing something that um, you know might pull us in a different direction and then it's about moving again, trying to find our true north again and moving in that direction. And life is like that, isn't it? It gives us twists and turns, you know, and um, how you adapt and how you are resilient to those things probably is important to consider. Not thinking I've a failure because I haven't managed to eat my whatever assigned diet for today. Therefore, you know, no point in carrying on. You know, that, that's probably a defeat, not a terribly positive way to look at it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if we think about them from an organizational context, you know, and, and building wellbeing strategies, what are some of the things to be thinking about in terms of this behavioral change piece?
1: Well, I think at the outset, if you're thinking about wellbeing, and you know, that's a very broad concept, isn't it? Or trying to impact on a certain particular aspect of behavior and workplace. Yeah, I think you've got to kind of conceptualize what it is you're looking to try and change and uh, may we all be behavior so um can I ask the audience maybe to think of some examples of things that they tried to change um within their workplace just so I got some examples to sort of pin some thoughts on Do hmm. we put something out there to the group, see what they think
0: yeah that'd be what great sort of
1: examples have they got?
0: feel free to I'm jump on kind of yeah cool. feel free to jump on the chat or to um to unmute and share a, a particular challenge. Anything? <laughs> lots of people
2: lots of people struggling with like making changes to what they're eating.
0: That's a great one. Thanks, Sarah.
1: Okay, it's a big one. Yeah. Any others?
0: I haven't got any more yet, but if anyone's keen to share.
1: So, the, who was it who well, offered that one? Was it, uh, sorry, it Sarah? Sarah's,
0: Sarah's. Other Sarah, Sarah Jackson.
1: Sarah. So Sarah, what tell me a little bit about what that project was uh, what sort of initiated project and what did you do? Just so I can sort of get a bit of a context to it.
2: Um so I main, I mainly work one on one with people with like epigenetic oh, right. house yeah. coaching or just personal training personal training work. So yeah, I feel like the diet is the one that's the easiest for people to slip off and just like have a snack or something and then, you know, kind of write the whole day off and <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how have you how have you kind of approached that when you've had that conversation with somebody
2: I guess sometimes looking at back at why like I kind of have this goal setting method that we use and it's like about identifying sort of the outcome that you're trying to achieve and then the obstacles and things like that so trying to focus on that and sort of work out what it is that's making them that they're struggling with and then otherwise yeah just trying to sort of you know explain to them that it's Not you don't have to get it right 100% of the time, but you just got to like keep chipping away at it or identifying like why, yeah, why they've fallen off. So if it's like they're stressed, for example, what you can be doing other than just reaching for the chocolate or (laughs) something instead, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, because food is such an important thing, obviously, in terms of like you know, not just your physical well being, but people use it for a lot of of, psychological reasons, don't they? In terms of what they eat and how they eat, yeah. So that's a good example. And I think in the workplace, you know, if you're thinking about a larger, small workplace or even a larger workplace, I work at the university and the University of Canterbury. And you, this, I don't mind this being on the record, I think there's probably quite an abysmal approach to how they deliver food in the workplace. We've got a lot of cafes, independent cafes, and they all offer various types of food, but none of it, I would say, is terribly healthy. So essentially what the university's, is kind of adopted is this kind of like, Pretty much the sort of open market capitalist approach to food choices, letting people decide what they want to eat from a very limited range of choices. And obviously they think about, they've got a health and wellbeing strategy at the university and it probably, you know, finds what they might think as being healthy eating and and healthy choices. But what's on offer in the university is, is, is in my mind quite, quite limited and uh, not terribly healthy. So what could the university do about that? Do they need to to sort of have contracts set up with their suppliers or with the people working, and delivering the food there, that there's certain foods that they will deliver and, uh, or have on offer and others that they won't. They probably wouldn't be able to want to go down that route. So it's interesting to see how certain university or uh, uh, workplaces might approach that issue of choice. Because I suppose it comes down to how much do you have to or do you want to control people's choices and leave it up to individuals to make the right choices from the range of choices that they might have. So that, that blue one is quite an interesting, quite a challenge, I think. Oh, excuse me, someone just got in the car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. That's a really yeah. interesting one, Mike. There's um there's a couple of other ones that have come through as well. One of them, which is oh, right yeah. up right up your alley, which is smoking cessation. And then, oh, yeah. and then the other one there is that's Mark's PhD area, so he'll be, we can talk for hours for that one. And then yeah. the other one is returning to work after working from home for most of 2020, which is obviously a really interesting oh. one because there's lots of environmental factors on that one too.
1: Yeah, well, I'm probably tempted to talk about the smoking session, Mark, because it's something I spent a lot of time working in that area. And in terms of policy, you know, the sort of national and local level, then we pretty much got the recipe right. It seems like we're actually doing. We have made a, quite a bit of a difference in terms of smoke free environments, particularly. And the smoking rates have come down as a, as a result from that. So in terms of motivating people to not smoke and, you know, in their own, that's right, the workplace and, and, in, in places like hotels, clubs, restaurants, bars and so on, I think we've got it just right. I think it's worked quite well and it, it actually has motivated more and more people to uh, stop smoking and, and amongst youth less of them starting to smoke. Because I think this is another important aspect to that. The social norm associated with smoking has changed. So that's another key driver in terms of some behaviours of some people, social norms and expectations. What's normal in your your social group? What's normal in your family? What's normal in society tends to define and drive certain behaviours. And so it's less and less normal now to smoke. It's becoming more and more normal to vape, which is another, another whole issue. Smoking station is, is, is a success story, I think, in terms of New Zealand, and, and I think probably Australia and, and various other parts of the world as well. Trend is, trend is going in the right direction. And that's actually, you know, in clinical work, working with smokers, people who smoke, I've done a fair bit of that. It, it's actually been really quite challenging in the past, particularly, to help people become smoke-free. Particularly when there's so many, but so many other people smoking, I and mean, smoke-free policy wasn't in place. It was really quite hard for them to do that. But becoming a becoming smoke-free is, is a lot easier than it was before because of that social norm expectation change. And then on the other side of that ledger, like the aspect to that we mentioned a bit earlier, it's more costly to smoke these days, so the costs are greater financially. And that's been a big motivating factor. Putting the price up in New Zealand, the price has gone up significantly over the last decade or more. Each year, it's gone up by a significant amount to something like $35, $40 a packet, very low costs in the past. And that's motivated a lot of people to stop smoking. So that has made a difference, you know, putting the cost up, which is obviously a penalty to somebody, you know, a cost to them from their pocket, has made some people, more people think i need to stop yeah mm. because they want to spend that money on something else mm.
0: so they're thinking, not
1: getting benefit from smoking than they used to mm.
0: so i was just thinking about our early conversation about loss that sounds like two lost things to me the social norm is the loss of mm. social status because of smoking and then yeah. the loss of money available for other things
1: yeah that's right it is in that sort of ledger i think there was a comment there from Catherine, which looked quite interesting could you
0: Mm, I can read it out. Okay. So there's one, uh, in case it's helpful, this is something I talk about, the choices people make during the wobbles and you've got your success diagram there, Catherine, um, which is there, but uh, there are some other ones as well, Mark, which I'll read to you, which is a good one, which I think many of us can relate to fitness and exercise regimes that are new plus finances as well. And then the question I want, off, so, uh, sorry, from Catherine. I wonder if that's part of our opportunity, understanding how to help people to stay motivated when other people around them aren't motivated. That's a yeah. really good question.
1: Yeah. So much easier, isn't it? To, you know, that's, I think, sadly part of the success of some of the sort of weight loss programs so that are mostly group focused and group based. So if you're along the journey with other people who kind of talking the talk and walking the walk with you, and along the ride and, you know, you kind of normalise the struggle with other people that can be really effective. So I think individual behaviour change, you know, if you're trying to do an, a project on your own, isolated, not without without support, without somebody to sort of hold your hand or support you along the way, that's it's quite challenging. Some of the greatest accessible programmes for Smoking Station have been group programmes and we really encourage people to go to groups. Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the most famous ones, you know, as a sort of buddy system incorporated into its model process, a stepped process towards becoming alcohol free. So it does seem like doing it with others is easier than doing it on your own for lots of different reasons. So I think we need to take advantage of that sort of that collective aspect of the sort of community aspect of change that if we're doing with other people, um, then, are great. The, the success is individual, but also collective as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's another sort of challenge in workplaces. If you can get a kind of a movement, a buzz about something in the workplace that people want to get in part, become part of and see opportunity for, you know, having fun and connection and, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> then people are going to wonder, yeah, I'll, I'll buy into that, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I was say, it sounds to me like you know somewhere that organizations can really leverage a strength is that social norm and that community and that peer group and that yeah. sense of support for people are there particular things you suggest you know tr- yeah. trying to trying to start these things trying to bring people
1: together yeah I know I think you know if you're a if you're a well-being work, um, practitioner in the workplace and you're thinking about initiatives i think you could come up with something on your whiteboard and think, right. Now we need to disseminate. Now we need to market this idea to the to the to the people that we want it you know is, to focus on. But would it not be better, perhaps, to bring those people in at the beginning in terms of the planning and thinking to actually get some champions, to get some people to think, yeah, that's right. We need to do this. So the sort of you know engagement with with your workforce, with the community in the process of coming up with what it is you want to do, which is a challenge sometimes. Is they come up with some wacky ideas, but okay. having some buy-in from them, and they can be your champions, so and they can be your advocates for the program you're trying to do. It makes a big difference. So we had that. You know, again, I will go back to the smoking cessation example. We did that a lot of, a lot, of, a lot of the time. Some of the most powerful kind of conversations were coming from people who weren't the professionals so much. You know, weren't the trained. A smoking station practitioners, uh, we can help a lot, but sometimes the more really motivating conversations when we brought somebody in who's been part of the program and came and talked about their experiences and talked about how they're involved in it and their participation in it. So that can sometimes be a really powerful way of bringing a more, you know, uh, participation into programs when you have a sort of champion. And I think somebody um, said yes to that. Who was that?
0: Uh, yes, Catherine was saying yes to, I think, agreeing uh, with what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. yeah. And then Jessica's saying she agrees that champions are key in elevating their voices and their stories uh, and using those collegial relationships.
1: That's right. Narratives and stories are really powerful as well. People people can resonate and connect with those things, can they? A lot more. They'll find themselves in that story. I think that can, again, it goes back to values. You know, oh, they're like me and I'm like them. They can do this. I can, you know, if they can do this, I can do this. They're having a, a difficult time. That's okay. It's, you know, it sort of normalizes the struggle. Sometimes it happens with people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So talk about some of the other sort of strategies that we see around. You know, one of the big ones, particularly for online, is gamification. What's your view on gamification as an approach to motivating people? Yeah
1: on idea and I, I get it and I think it, you know, it's so accessible and it's so you know, it's in your pocket and you can just pop it out and I've actually tried to do I've had a few of them myself I'm doing a course um, on acceptance commitment therapy and part of that course has an app that you use to sort of remind you of a few principles and ask you questions and I also had a, a, a go with a chatbot um it was sort of an AI system on your phone that talked you through sort of mental health and well-being. And I thought I used it for about two weeks and then just sort of faded it away. Um, it wasn't a gamification model, but, yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I think we've got to bear a little more research to look at the efficacy of these sort of... Um, formats for behavior change or changing specific behaviors and how much they need to make a difference i mean it's very appealing isn't it particularly the chatbot you write a program it gets delivered through an app people engage with it they pay a fee and you hope to make a difference so yeah i think the jury's out i think the research hasn't really well somewhat some of it uh it tells us that it does work but i'm just curious about how it works and why it works. Making something fun, making something engaging, easy to access, all those things, all those principles, I think makes sense. But I'm still not convinced as to the long term efficacy of that kind of approach yet. Yeah. Yeah. We'll sort of me being critical, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But I think they're with us and I think they're certainly part of the landscape in terms of how we intervene, how we deliver programs and intervene with people yeah
0: yeah in the suite of things so if you were sort of thinking you know in terms of being a well-being champion and you were thinking right yeah there are some kind of key principles that I should be thinking about when I'm putting together a strategy are they kind of you know like your top three in terms of behavior change or your top five that you can come back to and think you know what I'm developing is likely to have some kind of impact
1: the, the big one for me, and I think this comes from the world of motivation interviewing is that we can talk a lot about it's not so much what you say, it's how you say it. So content driven programs are good. You know, you need to have content. You're delivering a message. You're delivering a, uh, you know, a package of information, things you want people to know about that they maybe didn't know about before that we might expect or hope to change their behavior. You know, now I know. Fact X. I can now. I will do this thing because I didn't know that before, and those that's important. But I think how you deliver, and in, in, in many ways, that's the sort of the communication approach, the engagement, and how that's done.
0: Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R O W wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you really soon.